This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 24, with guest Noor van Boven. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Suvorova, and welcome to the show. As a former Chief People Officer at N26 and VP People at SoundCloud, Noor has scaled organization during times of extreme growth and constant change. She's globally recognized for her track record in building leaders of tomorrow and high-performing teams. Today, we speak about her life-changing events, career gap years, secrets behind leadership, and much, much more. This episode is here to portray a woman who is a creator and author of her own achievements, Noor van Boven. So I hope you're ready. And if you enjoyed the episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I really love reading those. Welcome, Noor. So good to finally meet you in person. And when I asked Georgie Smallwood, uh, my guest from the early episodes, who is her woman author of achievement, she mentioned your name. So finally, you're here. Yeah, thanks, Georgie. <laughs> I would have called, called, named her, but then you already got her. So. Yeah, right. Let's see, there's still some minutes until the last question. So, Noor, you are native Dutch and lived in Amsterdam for quite some time. What brought you to Berlin? Yeah, so I came to Berlin actually for work. So I always worked in more corporate settings and I wanted to make a transition to the startup scene. I actually was very focused on going to San Francisco. So I started interviewing with SoundCloud, completely convinced that they were headquartered in San Francisco. So if you don't do your research well, you end up in Berlin on your way to San Francisco. That's basically it. <laughs> and then you fall in love with Berlin and you never leave. Even for San Francisco. <laughs> no, even for San Francisco. Still okay, easy as that. I like that. I think you're the person who really knows how to reflect and to really pinpoint some of the life-changing events in your life. Noor, for you, the question that I had in mind is what experiences in your life has formed you the most if you reflect back? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's a good question. And there are, I mean... Of course, there are circumstances in your upbringing and your your family surroundings that form you in general. But if I link it more to my own character, to who I am, I tend to seek adventure. And then when I'm in the adventure, I'm like, whoa, this, how did I end up in that adventure? But it's when an opportunity comes, I'll jump into it. And very forming uh, for me has been that... Like in my student time, I was very focused on everything that's fun about your student time other than the study, right? And it was only when I did my internship at IBM where I really got introduced in the world of international work and going abroad and expats. And that really touched the right bottom, bottom with me. Like, okay, I want to work internationally. I want to work in uh, international organization and I want to work abroad. And then IBM took me very early on, directly after my graduations to New York. And I think that was the most forming part of my life because you go alone to the other side of the world, a little bit older. It was a little bit less common than it is nowadays to do that. And you're on your own in a city that you only know for movies and you need to find your way, you make international friends. And that I think has formed all the other choices that I made in my life. What were maybe disappointments that you encountered along your career, if there were any? The most, well, this also links to an international situation. Um, when I worked for uh, TomTom, the navigation company, and we just built up, I was responsible for recruitment and um, organizational design. So basically like the build out also of different countries. 
And we set up an office in Pune, India. And, and the office was already like 500 people big. We were for an uh, Amsterdam-centric headquarters. And we couldn't really get a grip on India. Like, we didn't know how to handle a non-Western country and managing it remotely back then, right? As, as the entire company. So at one point, leadership decided, okay, we need to have one of our senior managers doing the same global role that they do, but from India. So of course, I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> I'll go. Um, so I went there. And, but with full confidence, right? Because my career was really going well in Tom Tom. So I was like, I'm going to India. I've traveled a lot. I'm really open-minded to other cultures. I will go there. I'm going to solve all the problems. And I'm going to bridge India with, with the Netherlands. Oh my God, so naive. Like that was the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. Like the experience itself was the most beautiful. Like privately, it was amazing. I made amazing friends. I love the Indian culture. Like India still has a really big piece of my heart. But work-wise, I completely underestimated the cultural differences, the misunderstanding. And I think that definitely was the most difficult part in my career and probably also the most unsuccessful episode in my career, for sure. Way too naive, way too Western going in there into not picking up on small nudges that I was actually doing the incorrect stuff and only finding it out later. Uh, it's very humbling and it's really good in your career. And I wish for everyone who has a successful career that you have one episode where it's all of the things that have worked your entire career don't work. Like it's the best thing for you to continue to excel afterwards. Like it's good to have episodes of humbleness when you're on a successful journey. Mm -hmm. So you were coming back to Netherlands a little bit, feeling down. Yeah, it was like down and humbling. I was also excited because I privately loved it so much, but like I did feel like professionally that I failed, not in the global world that I already did, but the specific assignment I had to do in India. So how did you regain your confidence then? It was good for me to continue to, when going back in Amsterdam, basically going back to the role that I had before India, basically doing a step back and then rebuild your own confidence, but with the other, with the learnings that you already had. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's good. Like, I don't think I would have done it if I would have hit the wall. But you, I think if you are excelling and you're growing in your career, that point is inevitable to come. And I have to say, like, I have very down-to-earth parents. So uh, I remember that my dad said, like, we were waiting for it to happen. Everyone in their career will have a moment where you hit a wall and it took a very long time before <laughs> you hit it. So that's also very grounding. Very like, nice. <laughs> it's like, thanks, dad. Yeah, thanks. But like, it's also very down to earth on saying like, it's normal. You will have that episode. It's humbling. It's really good. It's what you do with the learning and you you can just continue growing. Let's talk about gap years. because yeah. I know this is also your favorite topic. Oh, <laughs> Do you think gap years show a lack of interest for work in a person or quite the opposite? It show passion for life, for adventure. And the reason why I'm asking is because especially many women, they are scared to have those gap years and go traveling somewhere because they feel this will affect their career development and also the salary they will be offered. So what's your take on this? Yeah, like I go, I completely don't have that view that it's uh, a bad thing on your resume. Like, I think it it also shows a lot of curiosity. It shows actually smarts. 
like if you go abroad and you go for example traveling like I went traveling for a year to Central and South America. Like I quit my job, but did it. Nah, of course, everyone was in the middle of an economic crisis. Everyone told me like, oh my God, what are you doing? If you are not lazy and you have a well-functioning brain, you will be fine when you come back. You might end up working a couple of months in a coffee place and then you will find your feet and you will find your own way. Like it, it will always, you will be fine, right? But I think that actually companies should... Really, and I have always worked for companies who do value it, I have to say, but should value it because if when you go abroad, you will be a way more open-minded. You will get, because not only for the countries where you're going to, also the people that you meet, you will meet like-minded people from all over the world, right? So you will get so much insight also on social economics, what's happening in the world and all of those social, economical, political things that are happening in the world where we in our day-to-day don't spend enough time on actually influence the way that companies succeed. Um, and in those years of travel, you are way more exposed to those type of dynamics and, and uh, the elements that are influencing the world. But it also, like, it shows stamina. You will go to really hardship. No one goes backpacking for longer than a month and not ending up in a situation where you need to be resourceful or where you need to really pull through. So it shows character. And I'm not saying that people do the, who don't like to travel, you don't need to travel, but I do think people who do do it have a really big advantage. And they should not feel bad about this gap no, in their resume. No, super proud. Like the, the skills, like everything in... A, I don't believe you should do anything for potential future luck. A bit of a waste. Well, maybe tomorrow you won into a million euros and you go live on an island and then you have now spent your entire life building up for that career that will never happen. Like, why, why would you optimize for the future, optimize for now and it will lead to somewhere in the future, right? But like, no, I think you should definitely go for it, be super proud of it and like tell proactively companies about it. And if you want to optimize for a future career, think about all the episodes in your life as transferable skills, whether it's your job and you might pivot in the future to something completely different or it might be travel or you start that business that completely fails you become a parent of, of a child like all of that are building up your character and different skill sets and do you think it's a cliche to think that if one really wants to grow they need to go into management consulting or hyper growth company because this is where you accelerate your career and nowhere else Yeah, that is a that's a bit the I think the bias of the skill up bubble because that's everyone's background. So everyone is just singing the praises of their own resume. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's always true though. It's a bit the myth of the A player, right? So A players don't exist. Everyone is a high performer when they are set in the right context in that moment in their life. And that context changes, right? So there will be episodes where you should a corporate more. And there are episodes where you're better fit for a skill up or the moments in your life where it's better suited to be in consulting. And that you need to define what that is, right? Um, but I don't believe, I mean, there are people who in corporate settings have a massive career, right? Angela Merkel never worked in a skill of nor consulting, as far as I know, and I think she has a pretty good career, right? So it's 
you need to do what you like and what you enjoy and that what fits best with you and move through life in context and in making sure that you operate in a context that suits you at that moment in time. And that is how you advance your career. So you can grow by just being at the right place at the right time and making sure that, I mean, you are doing your part. Yeah. And basically that's how you grow, despite on if it's a fancy company or it's the fancy consulting. Yeah, and matter. be reflective of when do you do your best work? What do you need, right? So people admire uh, Google or Uber or Facebook, but the people who worked at those companies six years ago worked in a complete different company than the people who are working there today. Right. So it's not good to blindly admire certain brands or certain circumstances. Be very critical to yourself. Like what will work best now for what I want to get out of this career episode. Right. And so, for example, if you are doing an executive job in a founder led company, right, that's a very takes a very special character to make someone else's dream work. Right. You can really question why would you do that? Those jobs are lifestyle jobs in the sense of, A, you're working a lot of hours, but a lot of people do that. But the problems and the complexity and the volume of problems that you're dealing with will make sure that your mind is 24-7 occupied with work, even when you're doing something else, right? So thinking about whether you are going to work on a job like that in that certain context is really dependent on where you are in your life at that moment in time. I did it for the last eight years and it was a conscious choice. That was the right moment in time, but I didn't want to do it now again, right? And I think that people need to go back to looking at myself. When am I my best self and what suits me now in my career? And then then you probably will also see different uh, environments and that will only enrich you. Noor, I would like to hear about your first leadership role. I think that that probably happened not so like the leadership role is different. Like leadership, my real leadership role as in functional leadership, that was in in uh, TomTom. But my first management was earlier um, uh, in Dell. So if you, if I think about management, the complexity of management is like, oh, I'm responsible for this person, right? So you go to all your pitfalls of like, I need to make sure that the person really, really likes me and becomes my friend because that's what I do as a manager, right? And then later you find out that's probably not so good. And then you become the complete opposite. Like you're going to distance yourself from the team because you can't find your way. And then like later you find a better rhythm. With leadership, the problem comes that you will have, for me, leadership is when there is functional leadership when you are responsible for multiple different areas and multiple different teams. Because then the complexity is in that you're so far away from what people are doing and you really need to set a high level direction. Your first management job, probably your first managing an intern uh, and then maybe one person or, or two people. But you know literally the job that they were doing. You probably were doing their job six months before, right? So you know everything. But when you come into functional leadership these people are asking you about a vision and you don't know in detail anymore what those people are doing and that is a really big shift where i definitely went in slightly naive of like oh oh wait i need to develop um, a vision that was in my time at TomTom. 
I mean, that was amazing. And it, and everyone should just jump into the deep. But those are very pivotal so, moments. So, so yeah. what were the things you had to learn and work on yourself as a leader? Uh, I had to find a very practical com uh, coping mechanisms. Like all of a sudden you manage your work very differently than when you're an individual contributor or just on a manager on a team lead level. When you're a functional leadership, you have multiple heads and a high, higher variety of topics that you work on. And you need to learn how to compartmentalize your work. And of course, at a later stage, like now, I don't even think about it. That's just, it's a muscle that I trained. But when you first go into it, you need to start developing tools and tricks on what you would do. So for example, I was responsible for three teams that did very different work. So some was more long-term focus strategic work and the other team was a recruiting team that's like super operational in the moment right so all the dynamics were also very different and i coped by just saying okay i'll do all my recruitment one-on-ones on monday and tuesday and all of the strategic team one-on-ones on wednesday so i started to compartmentalize all the topics a bit in my head because then i was in a flow of thinking and that helped me to be more visionary and long-term because i could reflect between the meetings on the same topics. And I wasn't constantly distracted in my mind. And now that goes automatically. But you very, you, you need to start, and everyone has different coping mechanisms, but you need to try, test and try what works for you. If you reflect and say today, what makes you a good leader? Yeah, if I think about I'm a good leader, so I was, Anna, my business partner, uh, gives me a lot of feedback on that. I've worked with her already for over 12 years. So she knows me really well. And when she reflects on my leadership skills, she always says like, you're very empathetic. So you see, what, see what's happening and you're available, but you also take the professional distance. So there's very clear feedback and direction on the topic, but on the person is always really human. It's more about like, separating topic and person, right? So if someone is struggling to say, this is what I see happening, this is what you need to deliver, I see you running into these barriers, let's elevate them. Um, but being very factual on the work that is expected and how can I help you moving forward and I'm gonna help you find the solution. But then being the caring person to the person to guide them through it and I think in leadership, it's very often difficult to balance that when you see you see the, the empathetic and the human side of things, right? So for example, think and skill ops, everyone's overwhelmed, right? So probably your overwhelmed employee is not delivering, right? And very often they say, yeah, but it's also super hectic and everything changes all the time and it's, it's, it's crazy. And you empathize with them because that's true. That is also the context. But then it's important as a leader to sit down. This is the context that we operate in. That context is not going to change. So that does like there is a me that empathizes with you as a human being, but there is also the factual side. How can we make you successful in that context? And so not crying with the wolves on like, I know that's a challenging context, but it's also that challenging context that we chose to operate in. So how are we going to separate that? And um, uh, I think that helps. And I, by nature, look much more in, I'm good in keeping the oversight on the different elements that are happening. 
So when people, that's the same thing, it's like when people are uh, overwhelmed, they go nose down into the topics, right? You see people completely going in the details and, and just plugging through, right? People start, I call that surviving work, like managing their inbox rather than their work. And I even under stress always have the high level overview. So then it's easier to pull people out and get them an elevation up to oversee again, what are you doing, right? You're, you're digging completely into one area. Well, actually you need to manage a much broader area. And then I can help getting people out of that so they can get back into a managing state. So since you mentioned this, so how does a leader sense between healthy, motivating stress level, the one that keeps you kind of on the feet, on yeah. the toes, uh, versus this near burnout team atmosphere? I think like there are a couple of things. So, so I'll come back to surviving and managing work. There's also a very important role for managers and leaders that leaders really need to be conscious about, and specifically in startup and skill-up environment. Like one part of your role is what I very unelegantly call being the shit umbrella, right? So you also need to make sure that you shelter people. You don't need to be patronizing. You need to make sure that they have the full context. But you also need to be conscious that you keep certain distractions away. Right. So if there's constant chaos and the organization is constantly going from left to right, if you already don't inform them about every little swing, right, or try to keep you the course of your team a little bit in the middle, right, you don't need to amplify the craziness that's happening around them. You don't need to to um, keep it away completely but you can damp it a little bit, right? Like that's for you to do. Or if there is feedback from other teams about a team member, like filter it out. Like if there is stress coming from the top, like if you live in, uh, in a founder-led organization, there are always phases that create more stress and you get more pressure as a leader. You're the buffer. So you constantly need to think like, is this stress that needs to be transferred to my team or not, right? So that I think is important. So that's what I mean with like the shit umbrella, like creating under that umbrella, the safe space for people to actually do their work uh, and operate in and keeping a really strong eye out on whether people are surviving or managing work. So managing work are your direct reports who are coming and saying, I can't do all this work. We are understaffed. This is what I can deliver. This I can deliver and we need to solve that. When people talk like that, they're managing the work. They're telling you, I can do all the work, but I still have the overview of what I can do and what I cannot do, right? When people are surviving work, people are canceling your one-on-ones because they want to continue working. They're working 24-7. They can only talk about complete details, like are going in the true nitty-gritty of things. So... Those are the moments where you, as a manager, giving feedback is no longer the right thing. They don't even have the headspace for it. But you literally need to hit the brake for them. Like, And it's not about a performance conversation or firing them. It's the complete opposite. It's about stop what you're doing and literally going back and saying, let's now organize everything that's on your plate. Let's prioritize. I'm going to take work away. And a very common mistake that a lot of companies make is specifically with early stage team lead or managers 
in startups and scale-ups and up very often in these overwhelmed situations because you also need to learn how to manage, right? But no one gives you extra time for that. And then your team in a startup is always understaffed. So if you are a first-time team lead or manager, you are going to pick up the work that drops off the team, which is impossible because there's probably two people work and you also need to manage the team and you're doing that for the first time. And then what you see that a lot of companies do is that they they scale the problem by saying, because that team lead or manager that's overwhelmed will come to you and say, I need more people, I need more people, we're drowning, we're drowning. And then they give them more people. Part of the problem of the drowning is that the person can't manage work and can't manage the team at the moment. So it's not about giving that person more people. It's like decreasing the scope letting them be able with the same amount of people to actually have a doable work package, to use a very old-fashioned word, so they can pick up the team lead and the manager skills, and then you can scale out the team. But you can better break it up in two rather than adding more people to it, because the team lead and management of those direct support is also part of the workload that's overwhelming. And being conscious as a leader, constantly thinking, what is now actually happening? What are the signs that I'm seeing? Is this person still coping and managing, but it's just factually too much? Or is this person surviving? And you can see it, like people, when people are surviving and then acting immediately as a leader. And there's always stuff that you can do. And Noor, for you, what was the hardest part of your job uh, with this seniority level that uh, you had such as chief people officer and people leader at N26, Zolando and TomTom and other companies? What was that the most difficult part? Yeah, I think like for mainly like in the when you're end responsible for something. So that was at the end with SoundCloud, but also uh, with N26. It's those roles are very lonely because like going back to that, when you're in shit on Bella, it also means that you don't, you shoulder a lot of things that you keep a bit away for the team for the right reasons to keep them healthy, but then it still leans on you. And when you're an executive in a founder-led organization, and I've worked for great founders who were very supportive, but they're not, it's not the same management direction, right? Like it's not, um, it's not the manager that is keeping anything from you away. Uh, and especially when you're HR, you're also the confidant of the founders. So when they are at the end or having worries or concerns, you're very often for them or for one of them, the go-to person. And the other executives will also go to the people executive, right? But you can never break trust. So you have nowhere to go. And that can become very lonely and if you start internalizing because you care that's why you're the people executive you care about the employees that might get less happy the managers get less happy and you internalize it all but you you cannot offload it somewhere um, and that's where i think it's really important that especially for executives in a founder-led environment having a executive coach is super important for your own mental health because then You have someone externally who has nothing to do with the situation that helps you compartmentalize everything that you're taking on because it's very difficult to do that for yourself. So it's an executive coach uh, for founder, but also can be for the management team. Yeah, I would have a different one. Like I would never have the same one for everyone in your executive team because then the external coach has a lot of 
influence can become a bit of a puppet master, but like make sure that people have different coaches that have nothing to do with each other because so they can keep the independence. But it's important that everyone has someone that they can work it through and start basically what you do as a leader for managers in like helping people to structure how to manage your work. They can help you structure and manage that really big meaty topics that keeping you awake at night because what keeps all the other people awake at night they will share with you and now it's with you and then it's good to have right. someone so, else so as soon that. as you find yourself in such situation you're like okay this is the right time for a coach yeah that you don't have someone to speak to you feel overwhelmed this is like the first red flag yeah it's it's a very good to have someone and can also like if, if an executive coach is a step too far i would really advise it but can also be someone in your surrounding that think about the people in your surrounding who help you reflect, right? Who ask the right questions or feedback the information, like what you are now doing in our conversation, like checking, like, hey, did I hear you say this? Sometimes people, when you let people speak, the reflection comes when the other person is reflecting back what you were just saying, right? So seek those people who help you reflect. And Noor, you worked in executive search, you advise founders and still do, and behind C-level hiring. Can we break down a little bit these three roles or four? Manager, leader, founder, CEO. And who is that person who is capable to combine all those roles? Is there such person actually? And who is that person who is maybe eligible for one of those roles or even none and more of a specialist, let's say? Well, people should define that for themselves, right? Like like being a scientist is very different than being a founder, right? Like the, you go deep on one topic. But even being a founder is very different because if you are Michael Dell, who's still the founder of Dell, he's now just leading a multinational already for like the last 20 years, right? So he's just a corporate CEO. He turned into a corporate CEO. And that's... Like, He's actually a good example. He started as a startup CEO in his student time in the garage, making himself laptops and start selling it. But when I joined IBM, he actually stepped back and said, the company now needs a real professional CEO, and that's not me. I don't know how to do that. Like, I'm, I'm a startup founder. He, he was more like a visionary, like to set, yeah. setting things right. Yeah, and but he also said, like, I've never seen a company forward in. And all of a sudden, we're a company with, like, 100,000 plus employees. Like, maybe we need to get someone in who knows how to do that. And then someone else came in for four or five years. And he said, but I want to team up. I want, I want to learn from you. And he learned it from five years from that person who led the company. And then he took over. And now, after all those years, he's still uh, the CEO of Dell, right? And those are, if you can read multiple articles about the difference between a founder CEO and, and a corporate CEO. But I think he's an example of how a founder CEO can turn into a corporate CEO, but very deliberately also on reflection, seeing yourself like, oh, now I'm running out of debt. Like, what am I going to do to bridge that? But I, like we work with a lot of uh, founders, but we also work with founders who say themselves it's becoming, this is not the context that I'm most successful in. It's growing too big. I'm an early stage startup person. Now I'm going to hand it over to the next person and I'm going to start a new venture. That's completely fine. right? So I don't think that there is one 
size fit all. I think there are different phases in your life, different roles work for you. And also different persons can play different roles and will have their different strengths. But when it comes to leadership and uh, being a manager, how do you recognize this person should definitely have this role versus the person being more of a team member and being of a specialist? This is how they contribute. Oh, one thing, sorry, because you asked now this question, I have an other reflection. <laughs> I think perfect. what's really interesting, actually, about startup founders is normally you're like team lead, a manager, and then it becomes bigger and bigger, and then you become a f functional leader, and at one point you might end up with company leadership in an executive team or whatever. But then you always play all these hats. Founders always have from day one company leadership, but have never gone through the ranks of team management and functional leadership. So they end up leading all the functional leaders without ever having done that job ever in their life and not even done the job of the layer below. And it's not about having done the job from a functional expertise, but literally knowing the dynamic of being a manager, making a mishire, like the whole cycle of pain that a manager goes through, right? With teams, like with conflict in the team and someone uh, who resigns too early, no, all that stuff. So that, that I think is a very interesting dynamic. It is. It's, it's, it's almost like a gift and a curse at the same time. Yeah. On the one hand, you started a vision and this is maybe your one 5% in the world who can do that and everyone is admiring you. On the other hand, at some point you have this expiration date. Yeah, absolutely. And another blessing of it is that your the empathy for the pain in the walls is also not holding you back, right? And that's what people in startups very often feel is like, okay, the founders don't have empathy on what, I, what I'm always going through as a leader or as a manager. But that also makes that they will push you to do way more than you would do in any other context, right? That is also why in the end, it's very addictive to work for founders and in founder settings It's way more innovating. There's, you're going to achieve way more than you do in any other context. So, but there's an interesting dynamic around that. I also don't think that there is one set profile whether someone wants to be a manager or a leader. I think there is one really key element is that the person really wants to be a manager, not for the ego or the status or the title or the, the uh, career progression, but truly about being passionate to think through How can you, with a group of people, have a larger impact on that management level? And how am I going to enable all the individuals to get to that group impact result? And that should be the intrinsic driver of someone who wants to go into a management career track. And I think that you will consistently see that when people are struggling with management, it's because they ended up in management for the wrong motivation. Right? So can be the best software engineer who is being pushed by engineering leadership to take on management responsibility because we want to divide and conquer. It can be someone who does it because actually they just wanted the acknowledgement of a step up and no one exposed them that they could make that step up outside of management. So then we take it or the job sounds so cool or my previous manager didn't do a thing. So, so it can be that difficult, right? Like, so those are the wrong motivations to take Absolutely. the job. Yeah, sounds like don't be that manager. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We spoke about this earlier, Noor, but you mentioned that you quickly get comfortable 
and you continuously look for new challenges and such as starting Invested right now, which is a boutique venture consultancy. But don't you feel intimidated to do something that is completely new and different from what you did before? Yeah, and it's even more intimidating. So Anna and I already 10 years ago discussed that one day we want to start a business together. And over the last years, both working in scale-ups and startups, getting also closer to investors, being very passionate about the inequality of uh, capital divide between men and women, we were like, okay, we want to end up in investments, right? But we have no clue. So we don't have money and we don't know how it works. That's a great starting point to go into investments. Um, and um, so we were literally brainstorming over wine. Wine is the best fuel for a good career progression. It makes you <laughs> for, very courageous. Make, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> To make a good choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but we were talking about like, okay, how are we going to do it? And then we said, okay, let's let's start with a consultancy for ventures and then the money that we make with that we are going to invest and then maybe after five years we know how it works and we will start a fund and we started six months ago and we are already getting offerings from people in the network to start a micro fund that is how quickly it can go six months ago i had never heard of the word micro fund right like that's also how it goes And um, the first calls that Anna and I were having with investors about, okay, how does it work if in the future we want to start our own fund? And we would literally have a Google Doc tracking the words in that conversation that we had never heard of. And then after the call, we would look up the words, right? And I still remember the, the call that Anna and I had and our sheet stayed empty and we called each other afterwards and we're like, oh my God, we both fully understood the conversation. And... It's so cool to be back in a space where you don't exactly know how it works. You're meeting new people, you're learning, you're learning fast. I would say what even cooler is how transparent and open you are about this because people at some point when they hit a certain career level, they're like, that's it, I know everything. Yeah. I'm the coolest one on the block, right? Yeah, but that's the biggest myth. Like my entire, the red thread in my career is I always thought, okay, the next layer knows what they're doing, right? So when I was the employee, I thought, oh, management knows what they're doing. And then I became the manager and then I found out, oh, they also don't know what they're doing. They just are better at hiding it, right? And then you go to leadership and you find out they don't know everything, right? And this is like how you triple up and you you have also slight disappointments that there is no magical <laughs> world in that level above. And that was a bit also same thing with, that in, with investments is that we now find out Like there is no magical bullet, right? So we are constantly asking for very sophisticated information and insights and approaching it as a science. And with more, the more people you speak about it, new worlds, new environments sound intimidating because they use a language that you don't know. There is a network that you don't know. So you're entering a new system and you don't know the system. And that is scary when the system is high school. It's scary when the system is university. It's scary when the world is investment world. It's scary when it's a management team or a leader team. It are just new systems that you're entering. And you need to remind yourself, like, I will be able to understand the system. And when I understand the system, I will be also be slightly disappointing that the system is not as sophisticated and smart and complex as I thought it was. But then you will also find 
your place. And um, I love it. And that it, is what we are experiencing now as well. I love this approach. And so for now, it's a consultancy and later it will become potentially a fund. So you just go with the flow and let this grow. Yeah, so we already invest. So all the money okay. that we make with consulting, we are investing. So as invested, we do invest. And we just recently made, made uh, two other investments. Um, oh, just six months and you're already up and running. <laughs> it's going so fast. It's crazy. But this is where when you enter a new world and you're curious, the one thing that I really learned in this one is because it was so new, Anna and I literally said to everyone that we knew in VC land, hi, we want to be investors and we don't have money and we don't know how it works. Do you want to help us? Right. And everyone said, oh, that's so cool. We will show you. I will introduce you to those people. So having that very open barrier of like, we want to enter that world. We've proven that we have a well-functioning brain. We're also not lazy. Help us to understand it. Then people are actually super excited to show you and share. And, and for us, it's been a very generous. That's really um, great to hear. I, I really wish, I mean, the best success in a, like keep an eye on this because, I mean, we, we have to keep an eye. Otherwise, it will develop too quickly. And it's like the biggest fund in Europe. <laughs> in, in <laughs> it one will always remain small. That, that I can tell <laughs> um, you. But, uh, the yeah. last question, actually, a question before the last, last question is back to invested. Is the reason why you decided to start that and do it instead of taking another exciting, you know, chief people officer role because you're recognized, right, as a people leader? Yeah, and I think that would be the most comfortable move in the sense of, of course, those are the jobs that are being offered and there, there's a lot of challenge that comes with the reality of being, in my case, a chief people officer, but it could be for anyone who's in, in a certain executive role. But it also comes with the recognition of like, oh, you're a people executive in the skill-up scene. We know you, right? And you walk away from that completely and it's a comfortable move to do that. On the other hand... I'm 44. I need to work till I'm 70. Yeah, how many SoundCloud gigs am I, or N26 gigs am I going to do till I'm 70? Right? We can. That's that's I, that's not healthy for anyone. I can tell you. <laughs> also, <laughs> not for the companies if I would do it. So I was very conscious of like, okay, I build up this career, and now I want to do. I always had a uh, diary and uh, wrote always life at 45 because I thought in my at 45 my career is going quite traditionally, when you look back on it, even though I had exciting episodes in it, I want to make a complete pivot. So I don't know what I'm, I'm going to do, whether I'm going to be a software engineer, whatever, but I always came up with ideas throughout my career that I would make a pivot. In the end, I thought, no, I want to become an investor because I want to make sure that more money goes into female founders. But I was also conscious I want to use my first career as an elevation to enter that second career and by doing this venture consulting they hire me and Anna for the track record that we have but right. that provides us the entrance to segue into that second career and who knows there might be a third episode somewhere along the way <laughs> <laughs> definitely my last question Noor is woman who is an author of her own achievements who is that person for you yeah um uh, I mention many but there are um two people that i want to call out is that okay definitely yeah okay cool. <laughs> so the first is claudia lambrix so talking about someone who is building a very stellar career path and could just have grown into becoming a people executive like 
En toen de full track records voor het, at the end was de, before she made a pivot, was de HR executive at Rocket Internet a few years ago. En then she really felt like there's something very authentic to me that I can give and I want to go on the journey to figure that out. She did a lot of uh, leadership guidance and now she is coaching on energetic leadership. And she, I find her super inspiring because she ended up not in just a standard coaching way. She really found, a, she found a complete new way of doing executive and leadership coaching. That is 100% who she is. Like everything that she stands for comes together in her practice. And it's also recognized and it's, Super successful because it's so authentic. So I think that that's really inspiring if you're talking about people taking risk and, and making a pivot in their career. And then you also see that it rewards. Someone else who made an interesting uh, pivot and also in a business that I highly uh, admire and I'm in her advisory board, so we'll be transparent about that, is Jenny Soft, who uh, founded Oviavo, which is a fertility benefit uh, organization. So they offer fertility benefits for companies, which is really big in the US. That's also where she saw it. Massive career within a gen. Like she could have followed that path easily, but decided like, no, I want to found a company. And she found a company in a segment that is highly debated at that moment in time when they launched in Europe. I think it will become very big. Like it's We can talk about that forever, but like inclusive benefits people, it's the, the place to be and look up her company, but it's really inspiring what she's doing. Sounds like potential guests for the oh, Women Authors of Achievement podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will definitely introduce you directly. I think they would be great podcast. Um, um, Noor, thank you so much for this conversation. I think it's a true jewel and you spoke so much of leadership, of the things that, you know, many of us don't tend to think about or don't even consider. So thank you for sharing such deepest insights on the topic of leadership, founders, and really making the right career choices. And thank you for coming. Cool, thank you. And by the way, that you are doing this podcast is also inspiring, right? So one day someone should interview you as well about that journey. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> you too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.